This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio and I'm James Whitmore. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where this show is being broadcast from, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and pay my respects to Elders past and present. Today we're going to be hearing about offshore wind farms, with Victoria the first state in Australia to begin development of wind energy in the ocean. I'll be right back after this. Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR. Recently, the Australian government announced the ocean off southwest Victoria would be the second zone for offshore wind farms in Australia, following the declaration of waters off Gippsland as Australia's first ever offshore wind zone last year. Wind farms have been around for a long time on land, but these will be the first wind farms in Australia out at sea. Offshore wind energy could play a huge role in reducing Australia's carbon emissions if it displaces electricity from coal and gas, and contribute to global efforts to prevent catastrophic climate change. But wind farms themselves can also pose a risk to marine life, including birds. Keith Breed is an ecologist who earlier this year published the first study on the risks to Australian birds of offshore wind farms. So Keith, can you tell us a bit about your research and what you found? You looked at a really large number of bird species all around Australia. So we, what, we, what we wanted to find out was if you're planning to develop an offshore wind proposal or if you're assessing an offshore wind proposal, what are the important bird species that might be at risk from that development? And what we took was the whole of the whole of Australia, the whole of the coastal marine zone for Australia. And so what are the birds that you're likely to find there? What are the sort of characteristics of those birds? So what would make them particularly high risk um, from the impacts of offshore wind installations? So one of the things that we did, which was to take a lot of the lessons learned in the Northern Hemisphere, in Europe particularly, where offshore wind has been in play for a, a long, you know, the last couple of decades. And there's been a lot of work done there. Obviously, the, the bird species, the assemblage of birds that we have in Australia is different to that in Europe. Although there's, there's some similarities, but there's some quite clear differences as well. But we can apply the same basic sort of understanding of, of birds um, to, the, to, the, to the Australian species as to the European ones. So we look at the sort of the the flight, the heights above the sea that the that birds fly. So how likely are they to be inside the area of the, the, the turbine blades? Um, what sort of flight do they have? Are they kind of a buoyant, agile flyer or are they a kind of rapid, not, not very good at dodging sort of flyer? So we can look at their body shape, their wings and their, their body weight to look at how well they're going to like to be able to fly like that. Um, and then we look at 
things like how how well could the population or how badly might the population be impacted how well it can it respond so it's it's really just the same process as risk assessments in in the workplace um, most people will be i can imagine them having a little shudder because no one really likes doing those very much but um they can be quite useful the idea that risk is a combination of the likelihood that something might happen and then the consequences of of it if it does happen and so in an ecological sense we look at the susceptibility of a bird species to something happening to it so whatever it's inherent characteristics that might make it more or less likely to be um, in a collision with a wind farm or impacted in some way by a wind farm and then we look at its um it's the the consequence of the productivity of a species so what's its conservation status is it critically endangered is it something that's got a big population size that we're not too worried about at the moment um, and what's we call its generation time so if there is an impact how long is it going to take that population to kind of replace um, the, the birds that were removed from it. So we sort of take all those factors and combine them to, to produce an overall risk factor for each species. And then we can look to go, okay, well, if you're going to plan something in this area, you need to be able to make sure that your monitoring and your planning and your mitigation takes account of these, these high-risk species. And so obviously we've got um, a lot happening in offshore wind in Australia at the moment. We've got two wind farm zones declared in Victoria, another one just declared in New South Wales. What does your research tell us about the birds that are going to be most affected by the zones in Victoria? So in Victoria, particularly, for example, on the, the, the Gippsland and the, the whole of the Bass Strait, we looked at as, as one zone in our risk assessment. Um, and one of the big differences, obviously, from the European context is that we have things like albatrosses, we have migratory parrots that cross Bass Strait. Um, and it, in both of those species groups, there are critically endangered species, things like orange-bellied and swift parrots and some of the larger albatrosses. Two, two groups of birds that are, there's, there's not many similarities between them other than perhaps their, their potential risk to wind farms and their conservation status. You know. the, um, but that was one of the important things that we, we did, I think, during that process was not to say, oh, these are offshore wind farms, so let's only consider seabirds, because there's obviously important birds migrating across Bass Strait, two of the only species of migratory parrots in the world migrate across that piece of water, um, and neither of them are doing particularly well. So adding additional risk is a, is a, is a challenge, and we, we don't know how to necessarily deal with that risk but it's important to recognize that at the outset that these are the sorts of species that could be impacted. Mm -hmm. When you look all around Australia, were there any areas that are, you know, a particularly high risk to birds for putting um, wind farms in place? I suppose the, the south east of Australia is an area where there are more high risk species, but they're just more, there's just more species there. Um, so there isn't one area that's better than the other. And when we start to look at the whole mix of where you would put a, a wind farm, um, in essence, you want wind. <laughs> it kind of goes without saying. Um, and if you look at where, you will, where you're likely to get a lot of seabirds, um, if, we don't, if we don't consider the migratory land birds for, for a moment, but the areas that like, you're likely to get most, most seabirds, like albatrosses and shearwaters and things, what they like 
is wind. So there's an inevitable overlap. Um, you, know, you don't see albatrosses where there's no wind. They don't like that at all. So um, there is a there is a, a sort of an obvious overlap in that. And and also, you know, for building wind farms, you need somewhere where you can actually put them on the sea floor or floating. But again, you want them quite close to uh, quite close to the existing power infrastructure. So you don't have to produce lots of extra transmission lines onshore to take power to um, to the cities where it's going, where that energy is going to be used. So places like the Gippsland uh, declared zone, the idea is that it, it taps into existing terrestrial onshore infrastructure to get that electricity away. So that's that's why the area is chosen. And then we need to look at, well, within that area, how do we then design mitigation strategies or monitoring programs to make sure that we can manage some of these risks? I'm curious, how do wind farms actually harm birds? Because I, I'm, in my head, it's a, a bird running into a giant spinning propeller, but I imagine there's more to it than that. There is. That's that's the, and I, you know, it's interesting you say that because that's obviously most people's view that you know, they're just going to get chopped up by these big, big propellers. Um, and that does happen. The collisions do occur. There's also the effect of, of birds being displaced. So... Now, luckily, birds aren't—they're not, they're not that daft. They can see this thing ahead, and and often they will take some sort of um, some sort of displacement, some sort of active movement away from that that wind farm, and that can be that can be fine if it's a if it's if that's a small deviation relative to a a, a large journey. Where it can be more of an issue is if the birds are kind of nesting on one side of, if you imagine nesting on one side of a wind farm. And they they forage in an area that's the other side. So every day they have to make an additional detour. So there's a cumulative effect of that potentially. So there's there's a displacement effect as well as a sort of collision effect, an avoidance effect potentially. Um, and increasingly, in a lot of the studies, particularly from the northern hemisphere, you know, there's increasing evidence of birds avoiding wind farms. So we're tracking with satellite tracking devices you can see how but the movement of birds shifts away from these wind farms so they're not blindly flying into them which is good it's reassuring that they can they can do that um but again it's something that within within australia with some of those different suites of birds not you know there's no albatrosses in the northern hemisphere um so we we need to be able to understand what are the flight characteristics of those sorts of birds um to make sure that you know, they're not colliding with wind farms, but also that some of those displacements don't have an adverse impact on their their overall sort of day-to-day life, as it were. You mentioned some of the things that make birds vulnerable to to wind farms, like their their flight height, their flight maneuverability. How on earth do we know that those things about all these different species of birds? Well, we don't know them all, and you know it'd be great if we had perfect knowledge. It'd be fantastic. But that's one of the things about doing the sorts of risk assessments where we don't we don't have all of the information. So we can take a, a quite precautionary approach, but come up with some approximations and say, well, um, you know, we 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 can observe albatrosses at sea, for example. The way that they fly is to use without being too technical, but they use the the sort of the, the change in wind speed close to the surface of the water compared to the, just a little bit higher. 
So if you've seen an albatross at sea, you, you tend to see them going up and down and up and down, but only, you know, if relatively few meters above the sea surface, you know, less than 20 or 30 meters usually. You don't see albatrosses soaring high in the sky like you would see an eagle or a vulture or something like that on land. So, you know, we can look at the sorts of behaviors and the flight patterns that they use, and then also look at their body mass compared to their the size of their wings um, to look at how heavily how heavily they fly as well. And so there's there's things like that that we can we can put into the overall risk process, so that not one of those things will be the single thing that that decide determines that risk. But it's the kind of ensemble of all of those different components that determines the risk. So even though we don't have all of that information, we can still get some idea of those risks. And, and that's really an important thing in, in, any, in any risk assessment, whether it's for things we do in daily life or whether it's for an ecological risk assessment. Um, because if we wait until we have perfect knowledge, then it might be too late. You know, we might be fiddling around with decimal places whilst Rome burns or whilst the albatrosses or the parrots have all gone. I'm chatting with Keith Reed, who has studied the risks birds face from ocean wind farms. More from Keith after the break, but first, this is King Stingray with Looking Out. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio.
I'm Philippe Cousteau from Earth Echo International, and you're listening to Out of the Blue, 855 AM, 3CR's Marine and Ocean News Program. That was Looking Out by King Stingray, and you're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR. I'm talking to Keith Reed about offshore wind farms and birds. But as you mentioned, offshore wind farms have been around for, for quite a while in Europe, maybe 20 years. Have the, and you've mentioned um, so that there are studies showing that birds are moving around around these wind farms. So have there been noticeable impacts on bird species in Europe? It's, it's, a, it's a real challenge because, um, you know, we don't, we don't know enough about all of the different factors that might be impacting bird populations. You know, there's a, a multiplicity of factors. And the introduction of, a, of wind farms may have, it's, it's, it would be naive to think it has no effect, but, in a, it, but the, the, the reality is detecting the, the individual effect of wind farms from the background noise of all the other factors that affects those bird populations is, is a real challenge. On the, on the one hand, the fact that you can't do it suggests that it's small enough because it's not the dominant driver of change in those populations. And that's the sort of thing that um, we, we're looking at trying to work out. Well, you know, in, in the context of Australia, before we, before we start implementing large numbers of wind farms, you know, what, what, would be, what would be our expectation of detecting the effects of them? Because there's no, there's no point in setting that bar really high when we have no chance of doing that. So we have to be realistic. Otherwise, again, you can end up having an effect that you're you're not detecting because you haven't put enough effort into into monitoring that. So those are the sorts of things that we're we're trying to to work out how to put those in place through sort of doing risk assessments beforehand, rather than just relying on collecting data at some point in the future that may or may not tell us what we think we need to know. So when it comes to actually putting wind farms in the ocean, are there any important strategies for reducing the risk to birds? Well, one of the one of the things that we're really interested in is is this thing about flight heights, particularly of albatrosses and petrels, um, and it's it's one of the it's one of the almost counterintuitive things. Certainly during the process, of, I initially found it quite counterintuitive that if you look at the not the growth of wind farms in their size, but you know the, the evolution of the size of individual wind turbines. You know, they've obviously got bigger over time, 
and um, bigger and bigger blades. And actually looking at that, the the height that those, the, the minimum height between the, 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 the bottom of the tip of the blade and the sea surface, as those wind farms get bigger, then that, that can increase. And so actually building fewer, larger turbines, putting larger, fewer wind turbines in the ocean, if building, putting bigger ones in, obviously you don't have to put as many because they're bigger and they generate more more electricity. Um, but also that, that means they can be quite high above the ocean. So there's a bigger area for those birds that tend to fly quite low over the sea surface anyway. There's a bigger area for those. There's a sort of bigger safe zone for those underneath. Now, there's going to be some impact because obviously the air is being kind of chopped up and becomes more turbulent. Um but still with the, the flight heights of those birds, um, we we think, and we, we there's lots of proposals to do research on this, um, that the heights of those birds is less likely to impact. They're less likely to be impacted because they're, they're not flying above 30 meters or 20 to 30 meters high. So actually there are, there are there is, there's a level at which you can say, well, where should we put the wind farm itself? And then once we've decided where to put it, what are the sort of individual design characteristics that we can put in place to make that wind farm safer for birds? Mm. That's quite reassuring because um, wind farms are getting real. I mean, the wind turbines themselves are getting really, really big. They're enormous yeah. structures these days. That is, you know, there's a sort of um, natural response to thinking that's a worse thing that they're getting bigger. But actually, um, I, I guess, and I thought that too. That was my natural, I guess, natural response. But actually now having gone through this process and thinking about what are the sort of mitigation approaches, um, it, it may not be such a bad thing. But I can I can see that, and I have colleagues that I've talked to about this and some of them still take a wee bit of convincing. <laughs> Obviously, climate change also poses a huge threat to birds, um, perhaps the biggest long-term threat for many species. And wind energy is one of the ways we're hoping to reduce that threat. How do we go about weighing up these different risks? Uh, it's the I think that is that is the big question. That is the and that's much I think that's much more of a sort of philosophical question. Um, and if I can try to try to sort of put it into context, we know that. Um, that climate change is the biggest threat to the survival, the long-term survival of a number of bird species. And in order to address, and that's that's globally, in order to address that, we, we know we need to change the way that we produce energy, decarbonize, stop contributing to um, global greenhouse gas emissions, et cetera. But the, the way that that happens is, if you like, it's very diffuse, it's long-term, and it's not very apparent at the individual level that it's a climate change impact. Whereas if you spin that around to something like a, a wind farm and you go and you look under a wind farm and you can find individual dead birds or a dead bird, then there's a, a very direct correlation. And people can link you know that's a, if it's if it's one step removed people can make a direct link with climate change it's sort of multiple steps removed even though the 
this, the same bird might have died as a result of a, a global effect of climate change, but people won't make that link. Typically, well, it's, it, it's you, you can't make that link really as directly. So we that's one of the challenges in saying look, we need to introduce wind farms and we need to we need to introduce alternative sources of energy in order to address this very large problem but in the course of doing so we, we might introduce additional risk but the the objective is that that introduced additional risk lowers the overall risk of of climate change but making that argument and, and putting putting that into context so people go well but i can see that risk I can see that wind farm and I can identify that versus the sort of, I guess it's not really invisible effect of climate change, but it's a harder thing to conceptualize. So I think that is the, that is one of the big challenges is take that time to get that sort of transition of, of thought, if you like, into the, it's that renewable energies that don't come without risk, but the overall risk, we're lowering the overall risk by having them in place. I'm not really an advocate for any particular wind farm or anything like that, but I think conceptually that's the way we, we need to look at that overall risk. That was Keith Reid, an ecologist who earlier this year wrote a paper on the risks offshore wind farms pose to birds. And I thought Keith's way of thinking about risk was really useful as we begin this big adventure in offshore wind energy. This is one of the biggest infrastructure projects to happen in Victoria's Sea, so in the coming weeks and months we'll be taking a closer look at offshore wind. And that's all for this week. If you want to listen to this show again or any of our previous episodes, head to www.3cr.org.au forward slash Radio Blue. We'll be with you again next week. And in the meantime, stay well. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests slow down the path of fire and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically these big large fires have been quite rare but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common so we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep radical voices on air subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377.